Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi rabbil alamin. Ve'l akibatu lil muttaqin ve la udwana illa 'alal zalimin. Ve eşhedü en la ilahe illallah ve li's salihin. Ve eşhedü enne Muhammeden abduhu ve resuluhu. Sallallahu aleyhi ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecmaîn. Amma ba'd. Then Allah pleases us to be with our brothers in Bradford Masjid Sunnah with our brother Abu Iyad Hafizahullah and Akhuna Abu Mu'ad Hafizahullah May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this gathering approved for us not against us on Yom Al-Qiyamah May we benefit inshallah from this gathering Ameen So we just take this in random Tfadal Ibda Al-Yameen Tfadal From the right, we start with the right okay. huh? He's on the right <laughs> so the first question for you. The question is, how do we warn people against listening to the internet sheikhs such as Menk, which is a Mufti Menk? Subhanallah. First of all, we are in a very... Bismillah um, walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ba'd. First of all, we are living in a very confusing times in the sense that everybody has immediate access to potentially thousands if not hundreds of thousands if not millions of people by way of things like social media and you know the various uh, different forms and types whether we are speaking about Twitter or Facebook or any of these other uh, methods so using these platforms, we, we see, and we've seen in the past five to ten years, past five years specifically, where we have these personalities, personalities appearing. And if you look at these personalities, you will see something common amongst all of them. And you see this also in Mufti Menk very, very clearly. Which is that these people, if you look at what they speak about, the nature of what they speak about, the content of what they speak about, you will see clearly that it is not based around haqq and batil, truth and falsehood, sunnah and bid'ah, tawheed and sunnah. Rather what they speak about are things which people are, you know, which, which first of all, no one is really going to dispute about, Issues of akhlaq, manners, issues to do with family, issues to do with marriage, issues to do with divorce, issue, issues to do with you know, interacting with non-Muslims. All of these are really non-controversial issues. And if you ask any person from any firqa, from any different sect, you will find pretty much a uniform answer. And this is because these individuals, these people, they are really, what they are looking at, is an audience, huge audiences, huge numbers, huge followings. And for those people 
to conceal the truth, this is kitman, kitmanul ilm. It's, it's concealing the knowledge. It's concealing the truth. So instead of, for example, speaking about clearly issues that they, that they would know and would have knowledge of, such as, for example, the mistakes of Jama'atul Tabliq, or the mistakes of Al-Ikhwan Al-Muslimin, or the, you know, the aspects of Sufism that you find amongst individuals or groups. So whatever mistakes that you find in the various countries that they go to, where they know that this population is from a Sufi background, and this population is from certain such background, and this population has an Ash'ari Aqidah, and this group has a... They know this, because when you go to these countries, you go to the Far East, you know, you see that they are Shafi'i Ash'aris, you go to uh, other places, you see they are Hanafi Maturidis, you see... All of these people will not touch upon these issues. They will not touch upon these issues. Now, some of them are very, very clever... <coughs> in that they will never ever mention anything controversial, which you can then say, this is a mistake. Some of them are very, very clever. And this is like Mufti Menk. They will never delve into issues about what differentiates a Salafi from an Ikhwani, or from a Tablighi, or from an Ash'ari, or from whatever else. They will never touch upon these issues. But they will, they will speak in the most general way, so you have nothing with which to criticize them. That in itself is a clear proof that these people are not upon the right aqidah or the right methodology. That in itself is sufficient proof. When you see a person not clarifying the haqq, the truth, and not speaking in accordance with the state and condition of the people, what we know of the people, that they are divided, that they are upon you know, various beliefs and methodologies, and leaving all of that aside, which is the true reason for the disunity of the Muslim nation, Leaving all of that aside and speaking about good manners, marital problems, issues of divorce, issues of inheritance, issues of akhlaq, issues and you know, then you know that this man is a silent devil. He is concealing the truth knowingly. And so this is Mufti Meng specifically, and there are others which have you know, similar uh, traits. So the way that you warn against people like that is you say that these people know the truth and do not convey the truth. And they want to please the people, they want to build audiences, and they will never speak about groups or individuals, because first of all, either they, are, either they pretend to be ignorant, or they actually genuinely are ignorant. Right? And just because they have credentials, they've been through you know, whatever institutions, does not mean that they have understood the Salafi Aqidah or the Salafi methodology, such that they should you know, uh, speak on the basis of it. So either they pretend to be ignorant, or they, actually, or they actually, actually are ignorant. Now contrast that to the scholars, the Salafi scholars, the people who we know to be people of ilm. For example, Imam Ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Imam Al-Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala. You look at these great scholars, what you see in their biography, and in their whole life history, what you see from them. Imam Al-Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala, you see in his whole life, it's a refutation of every group that you, that, you, that you can see present. He refuted Hanafis. He refuted them on the issue of grave worship. He refuted the various groups, Al-Ikhwan. He refuted Hizb al-Tahrir. How many debates he would have with these people on the issue of Hadith, Ahad, Hadith, and so on and so forth. Allah's ulu, Allah's you know, being above the throne. He refuted the, the Khawarij of this era, Safar Salman. He refuted Abdurrahman Abdul Khaliq on the issue of entry, in, entry into parliamentary uh, elections and things of that nature. 
He refuted the Sufis, Jamaat al-Tabliq. He refuted the Murji'ah, the Hanifi Maturidis on the issue of Iman. Everything that you see, he's making tasfiyah, he's clarifying the way, he's purifying the way. Same with Abdul Aziz Imbaz, ta'ala. You see in his whole uh, history, you see him speaking about Ash'aris, Sufis, Khawarij, Ikhwan, Tabliq, and individuals as well, specific individuals, not fearing the blame of anybody. This is what we know to be from the characteristics of a scholar, of an alim. Of an alim. It is manifest from his speech, from his writings, from his works. You see not only affirmation of the truth, you also see invalidation of the batil. Ibtalul batil and ihqaqul haq. You see these two things at the same time. So anyone that you see in the field who is not clarifying the way in this manner, then this in itself is a proof that this person cannot be upon the way of, of the Salaf. And it's sufficient, that in itself is sufficient for you to abandon, abandon this man and leave him. Because it is not possible for anyone to know and understand the state of this nation, the Ummah, and the splitting and the differing, and the misguidances and the desires which are widespread amongst the people. And then all he does is, is he speaks about good manners, akhlaq, and unity and marriage and divorce and that's it right so some of them are very clever they will not give you anything by which to criticize them they'll be very very careful and this this is mufti mink he's like that so this is what we can say allah knows best if abdullah wants to add anything or our brother taqweem to that inshallah i mean alhamdulillah i mean i just saw a, a youtube video where where he says Mufti Menk, this one they call Mufti Menk, where he says that we all make mistakes. We all, you know, everyone errs. Everyone, make, it's true. Everyone makes mistakes. Hadith of Prophet and the best of those who make mistakes are those who turn into repentance. So yes, we all make mistakes, but the best of those who make mistakes are those who do tawbah. But the Prophet did not leave us without correcting mistakes. That is the, the key that he's hiding, the affair that he's hiding. The Rasul when the man said, MashaAllah, wa shi'ta ya Rasulullah, he corrected him. When he said that which Allah and you willed, O Messenger of Allah, he corrected him. He said, Have you made me a partner with Allah? Say, MashaAllah wa'dah, whatever Allah willed on his own. And the one who said, Make for us a tree to hang our uh, weapons for good luck. Like they have a tree, the polities have a tree whereby they hang their weapons for good luck. The Prophet ﷺ said, Allahu Akbar, you have said what Bani Israel said to Musa, make for us a deity like they have deities. So the Messenger Sallallahu did not leave errors except that he corrected them. When the person made a mistake in a khutbah, he said, Bi'tsa khatib al-qawm ant. And he corrected him. So what Mufti Menk, this Mr. Menk, wants to do is to hide those errors. Don't speak about those errors. And that is the ikhwani principle. We cooperate in that which we agree upon and we excuse each other in those things that we disagree upon. Even in aqidah, excuse, no. Aqidah must be corrected. Methodology must be corrected. Errors should be corrected. 
because we want the truth to prevail. Allah said in the Quran about the best people, the Sahaba anhum, and the Prophets, primarily the Prophets, because after 18 Prophets and Messages were mentioned in Surah Al-An'am, he said, he said, فَبِهُدَاهُ مُقْتَدِي So follow, so with their guidance you should follow. He didn't say individuals. He said their guidance. As Shaykh Al-Sa'di explained. So it's the guidance that we want to follow. It's the guidance we want to follow. It's not about people, individuals. It's about guidance. We want guidance. فَبِهُدَاهُ مُقْتَدِي So what he wants to do is cover, hide errors. And this is not the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You should hide errors. The truth must come out and the truth must prevail. قُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقِّ وَزَهَقَ الْبَاطِلِ إِنَّ الْبَاطِلَ كَانَ زَهُقًا Truth has come and falsehood has perished and falsehood will always perish. Truth should always prevail and should be above everyone. Everyone. Now, تفضل يا بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه. This question says, I would not engage or mingle with students of knowledge, fearing my intention may falter from simply striving to please Allah to seeking their empathy. Is this right? And how can one protect himself? from such evil. To be honest, I'm not sure what the evil is in that situation. A person with regards to his company, with regards to your companionship, then the students of knowledge, those who are sincerely striving and learning and acting, then they are exactly the types of people you want as your companionship. They are exactly the type of people you would want. The Salaf they used to mention that, or the scholars in fact they used to advise recently too, always make your companions people who are more knowledgeable than yourself. Your companions, your friends, your circle of friends, choose them from people who are more knowledgeable than yourself. Because in that way, when you are with them, you're in their company, you are constantly benefiting from them. Whereas if you are the most knowledgeable, and your company is all lesser than you in knowledge, then you will not particularly benefit. You may of course, but not particularly in comparison to the situation where if your companions were all more knowledgeable than yourself. So with companionship, you need to be with the righteous. You need to be with those who are upright upon the religion. In the narration it mentions, That indeed a person will be upon the religion of his companion. So look to whom you hold that companionship with. Look to whom your colleagues are. If they are evil, then they will drag you to evil. If they are good, then they will drag you and pull you up to good also. In the other narration it mentions, مَثَلُ الْجَلِيسِ الصَّالِحِ وَالْجَلِيسِ السَّوْءِ The example of a good colleague, a good companion, and a bad companion, 
is like the Hamil al-Misk and the Nafikh al-Kir, the one who carries the Misk, the fragrances, and the one who is the, the ironmonger, the blacksmith. As for the one who has the fragrances, either you go to him when you're in his company and you buy some and you benefit from that and you have the good fragrance. Even if you don't buy any, when you're in his company, he is selling fragrances. They affect upon you and the fragrances will rub off on you. So you come away from him having benefited. Whereas the ironmonger, the, the blacksmith, if that is the type of person who your company is when you go to him and you are with him, then either you come out with burnt clothes or you come out with bad smell on your clothes. That is the example of having good companionship and bad companionship. So this person now saying that I don't mingle with students of knowledge, fearing my intention may falter, then that is incorrect. That is from the whisperings of the shaitan keeping you away from good. It is goodness that you be amongst the people who are righteous and upright. It is goodness that you have the good company with students of knowledge. It is the shaitan who is whispering this to you. And that is very similar to when it comes to the issue of showing off. A person says, I don't do particular worship. I don't do particular worship because I fear that I may fall into showing off. If you're prevented from doing worship upon this fear that you're going to fall into showing off if you do it, then the scholars, they say, that is dispraiseworthy. The shaitan has confused you into stopping you from doing worship, thinking that you're going to be showing off if you do it. Rather, be sincere, strive, make your intention pure and do your worship. And similarly here, make your intention pure and strive to be with the good company and to be with the students of knowledge that will benefit you in your religion, in your knowledge, in your understanding and in your practice that you get encouragement from those who are upright. So do not stay away from the students of knowledge or those who are righteous and upright in the society. Rather hold them as your companions and to be with them. There's a question here Can you say Allah has a body? Can you say Allah has a body? This statement <clears throat> in Arabic, when they say, In Allah jismun, indeed Allah is a jism, or Laysa bi jism, Allah is not a jism. This is from the inventions and the fabrications of the people of Kalam. Ilmul Kalam. And this is what was brought into this nation, Muslim nation, by the likes of Al-Jahm bin Safwan and Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham. These two are imams of misguidance. And what they used to do would travel to various parts in the Islamic lands, they would go to uh, Harran, where there used to be philosophers, star worshippers, who used to be well versed in Greek philosophy. They used to go to Damascus, Al-Ja'd bin Dirham, possibly it is likely that he went to Damascus. He was arguing with Christian theologians, scholars, 
John of Damascus is one of them. And he used to move around these different places arguing and debating with the Sabi'ah, the star worshippers, with the Christians, with the Yahud, with the rabbis and so on and so forth. And they would absorb what they took from them. And then they entered their statements into Islam. And so one of those issues was to do with Allah, His names, His attributes, how can we prove His existence. And in order to do so, they abandoned the method in the Qur'an. In the Qur'an, in the methodology of the prophets and the messengers, there is a clear methodology as to how Allah by way of His messengers, calls the people to worship Allah alone. Calls the people to first of all believe in Him and then to worship Allah alone. And this is found everywhere in the Qur'an. Everywhere in the Qur'an. Two very quick examples. First of all, in Surah Ibrahim, قَالَتْ رُسُلُهُمْ أَفِي the messenger said, Is there any doubt regarding Allah? Shak. And the scholars explain that there are two parts to what they said. Shak, the first part is an appeal to the fitrah. Every person knows instinctively that there is a creator. This is fitrah. This does not require any thought, any reflection, any reason, any intellect, any observation. It's something that's instinctive inside every single soul. So, the first thing the messenger said, is there any doubt about Allah? Appealing now to the people's fitrah. And then they said, He is the originator of the heavens and the earth. This now is an appeal to the aql, to reason. In other words, establishing that Allah is the originator. And in this respect, they pointed to the signs, the ayat, the baraheen, the evidences, uh, the basair, you know, all of these things that the messengers pointed to, to show to them rationally that there has to be a creator behind uh, this creation. Likewise, the man, the man in the city to whom many messengers were sent in Surah Yasin, and he said to the people when, when, when they rejected the messengers, the three messengers, and he said, uh, as we see, وَجَاءَ مِنْ أَقْصَى الْمَدِينَةِ رَجْلٌ يَسْعَى قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اتَّبِعُوا الْمُرْسَلِينَ اتَّبِعُوا مَنْ لَا يَسْأَلُكُمْ أَجْرَى وَهُمْ مُحْتَدُونَ So man came from the further parts of the city. He said, O oh my people, follow the messengers. Follow those who do not ask you for any reward. And they themselves are guided. Incidentally, this shows you that the people of truth do not charge people to hear the truth. Follow those who do not ask for any wages, any ajr, any reward, and they themselves are guided. So you see these people like Al Maghrib and all those institutes and you know many of these Hizbiyin, they charge you and they misguide you. The opposite of what the messengers do. As we see in the statement of this man, they do not ask for any ajar, and they are rightly guided. And this is the way of the people of haq, the people of truth, incidentally. Anyway, this man, he says, and this is the shahid, وَمَا لِيَ لَا أَعْبُدُ الَّذِي فَطَرَنِي وَإِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ Why should I not worship he who is the one who originated me? And he used the word فَطَرَنِي, فَطَرَنِي. And to him shall I be returned. 
This now is the appeal to the fitrah. He's saying to them, look, the one who originated me and you, why should I not worship him? Why should you not worship him? When, when you know this by way of your fitrah, this is the argument. Then in the next part, he then used reason. He said, أَأَتَّخِذُ مِن دُونِهِ آلِهَا إِنْ يُرِدْنِ الرَّحْمَانُ بِضُرِّ لَا تُغْنِي If, uh, he said, uh, if, should I take other deities besides him? Why should I take other deities besides him? If Ar-Rahman intended some harm, then their intercession would avail me nothing whatsoever. This now is an appeal to reason. He's saying, look, Allah is in control of benefit and harm. And if anyone intended, uh, if, if, if Allah intended harm to me, no one else would be able to benefit me in anything. Not even the intercession would be of any benefit. So why should I then worship others besides him? This now is an appeal to reason, calling to the reason for, for worshipping Allah alone. So that this is what the messengers came with. Right? This is what the messengers came with. They came with fitrah, and they came with sound reason in order to prove that worshipping Allah alone is the truth. They never came to prove Allah exists. They never came to prove this because this is already in the fitrah of the people. Right? So is this clear? This is the way of the Prophet and Messengers. So these people that we were speaking about earlier, Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham, Al-Jahm bin Safwan, what they did is they learnt these philosophical ideas from these different nations, from the Yahud, from the Christians, from the Sabi'ah, who themselves were influenced by Greek philosophy. And in Greek philosophy, they used to talk like this. Everything is a body, and a body has attributes, and whatever has attributes is originated. And all of this is the language of, of Aristotle. Al-Ajsam, Al-A'rad. And these people, they took this knowledge from those nations, and they brought it into Islam. And then they tried to speak about Allah using the same language. And then they then began to make distortions of the Qur'an whenever there were verses to do with Allah's names or attributes to make it fit this language. Right? So the first person to come and say, Inna Allah, indeed Allah, laysa bi jism, is not a jism, is Al-Jahm bin Safwan. As Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah mentions in many of his works, in uh, Minhaj al-Sunnah, in Biyan, Talbis al-Jahmi, and other places, he's, he mentions that Al-Jahm al-Safwan was the first one to say, Allah is not a body. And then those who were the first to say Allah is a body are the Karramiyyah. Karramiyyah Mujassima. These were some Hanafis in the 3rd century, around the time shortly after Imam Ahmed. And what they did was they, counter, they, they were a counter-reaction against the Jahmiyyah. The Jahmiyyah said Allah is not a body. And because their, their argument was anything which has attributes must be a body. So Allah can't be a body, therefore He has no attributes, has no names. And the other side, the Karramiyyah, they said, well, wait a minute, Allah definitely has attributes, and the only way you can have attributes is if you must be a body. So Allah has to be a body for Him to have attributes. Right? Responding to falsehood with, with falsehood. Right? So they said, Allah is a body. But, but then they qualified their statement, they said, well, He's a body, but not like the bodies that we know. But in any case, the language is wrong. Why is it wrong? Can anyone tell me why it's wrong? What is the principle that we, that we follow? What is our principle from the Qur'an, the Sunnah, and we have the Salaf in how we speak about Allah? 
That's right. That our principle is that we affirm for Allah whatever He Himself affirmed for Himself. Because He is the most knowledgeable of His own self. And we affirm for Him whatever His Messenger affirmed for Him. Because the Messenger is the most knowledgeable of the creation of Allah. And likewise, when it comes to negating things from Allah, when we say Allah is not such and such, we follow the way of the Qur'an. Whatever in the Qur'an it says Allah is not such and such, then we say that. And whatever His Messenger says that Allah is not such and such, then we follow that. We stick, we stick to this language, and in this there is safety. Because we are following the way of the Prophets and the Messengers. So the answer to the question, can you say Allah has a body? No, this is a bid'ah in the religion. And it is haram to speak about Allah with that with which he did not speak about himself. Or which his messenger did not speak about him. And all of this is from the innovated rhetoric of the people of Kalam, who do not stick to the Quran and the Sunnah. Rather they take the philosophies and the ideas of other people and they speak on that, on that basis. So, uh, Allah knows best if anyone wants to add anything to that. There's a question here. For those of us in the West, which books do you advise us with to learn Arabic? And in which order? Barakallahu feekum. Bismillah. The first book that you learn in the Arabic language, you know, to learn the Arabic language, for the Arabs generally is Al-Ajrumiya, which is an easy book. It's for primary school students. It's not difficult. It's like the skeleton of the language, the nahu, the grammar of the language. And it is systematic. But say somebody doesn't know Arabic at all, and needs to start from scratch, then alhamdulillah, the Medina program is one of the best to learn the Arabic language. The, the Islamic University of Medina, they have a program with four levels, and you can learn that systematically. Alhamdulillah, our brothers... Here and in Manchester, I'm sure there are classes in the Arabic language. Strive to learn Arabic language because it will aid you in understanding Quran. It will aid you in being better in your dhikr, in remembering Allah, in coming closer to Allah, to ponder over what you are saying. So use the Medina program. That is a good program, mashallah, tabarakallah. And the examples are given from the Quran and Sunnah. The examples are given in Ayat are mentioned, the hadith are mentioned. So it connects you to the, to the narrations, which is good. Uh, and, and if you are able to pass the first book and the second book, you can go to Ajrumiya because the second book deals with inna and akhawatuha and kana wa akhawatuha. It deals with that. And then you can, from that level, you can go to Ajrumiya because you will be repeating some of the stuff that you have already learned. First book is just definitions. Then you move on to the second book. Naam which is slightly a bit more difficult, but it's just another level with a bit more grammatical uh, features that you'll find in Al-Ajrumiya anyway. And the third and fourth book, that's really the, the big step that you make in, in the Arabic language. So the key point is to go over these books. Go over them with the teacher. And Al-Ajrumiya is one of the best. You will يعني, suffice yourself with uh, grammatical rules, and especially if you study it with a tuhfa, which is the original sharh, if you like, the early explanation by Muhyiddin. Going through that book with the tuhfa explanation, with the teacher, 
because it has questions and answers, questions at the end of every section, going through that. And that's one way you can study. And after you finish that, then Al-Mutammima. This is according to Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Kuni, Hafidullah in Medina, a teacher of the Arabic language, a student of Sheikh Muhammad Amin Al-Shinqiti, Rahimullah. He has these levels that you follow. You start with Al-Ajrumiyyah, then Al-Mutammima. Now the difference between Mutammima, which is called Mutammima, completion of Ajrumiyyah, Mutammima has additions. It is like the skeleton of Al-Ajrumiyyah with a bit more. And also the istidlal, the proofs that you find in Mutammima of each grammatical feature is from the Qur'an, which is wonderful. Because it means that you're connected with the Qur'an, ayat, connected to understand some of the, uh, uh, to memorize some of the proofs. Once you finish Mutammima, then you could either go one or two ways. Either you go through studying Qatar and Nada, which brings you the differences between the Basariyin and the Kufiyin. Some of the slight differences are mentioned in there, the Khilafat. And or you can go over the the Alfiya, uh, uh, which is a bit harder, and it's harder than Qatar and Nada. Qatar and Nada, I prefer it because in there you'll find lines of poetry, which the scholars are using in their durus anyway. Lines of poetry for istidlal, for as proof of certain points. Naam. That the grammatical features that you can learn. So that way is, inshallah, a good way to go through. Now that is just grammar. Arabic language has about 12 arts. It's not just grammar, but also sarf and balagha. And other than that. So this is just one aspect of the Arabic language. And it is an important aspect. Now there's one book I'd, I would not advise you go through. And that is Arabiya Bayna Yadik. I hate this, 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 uh, this program because of one thing which as talib ilm, any talib ilm, I advise to go through a program which teaches you the endings of words. And this program does not do that. For a talib ilm, it is not advisable to go through this program. Why? Because first of all, the stories, lots of stories, newspaper cutouts and so on. It's not really ideal for talib ilm to go through. It's better for talib ilm to go through that which will get you connected to the Qur'an and the sunnah. And not only that, that which will get you connected to speaking properly. Shaykh Abayd used to say, لَا يَنْبَغِي لِطَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ أَنْ يَلْحَنَ فِي كَلَامِهِ وَقِرَاءَتِهِ It's not befitting for the student of knowledge to have lahan in his reading and in his, in his speech. So therefore, lahan will come if you don't know the endings of words. Where is it going? Is it the fa'il? Is it the maf'ulun bihi? You know that by the ends of words. Arabiya bayna yadik does not teach you that. Because it teaches you colloquial, it teaches you to stop at the word without actually mentioning the tanween. So you won't say Ja'a Rajulun, you will say just Ja'a Rajul. And he doesn't tell you that because you need to know when you add the tanween, you know that's fa'il. Marfu, alamatu rafi, So you know that this one teaches you the, sec- the part of it in speech. And so I don't like this Arabic. I tried to, I taught uh, book one in Slau. Alhamdulillah, the brothers in Islam, book two, there was about 30 brothers. And then when we started book two, I don't know, by the halfway of through book two, there was about three brothers left. So he needs patience. But when I looked at Arabiya Bayna Yadik, I was like, no, 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 this is not the one. For the Talib al-ilm, you need to get connected to the narrations. The book of Allah 
and the sunnah of the Messenger Sallallahu So I don't like this program. Arabiya bayna yadayk. La. This bayna yadayhim hum. It's not bayna yadayk ant. Bayna yadayhim hum. Because there's their, their language. Colloquial, which is sometimes dialects that you're learning. And it's not the, the actual lugha. So my advice, don't go through that. That's the advice that Sheikh Muhammad, Sheikh uh, Abdurrahman Al-Kuni, our teacher, started with. And there's other books. Sheikh Muhammad Al-Banna, rahimullah, he said the first book that he used to teach is An-Nahul Wadih, which is a good book with lots of examples, lots of amphila uh, um, that you can go through, and it's nice as well for primary. It's a nice basic book that you can go through. And uh, also, there are some other books that Sheikh Abdurrahman Kuli taught in the Nahul, like Mulhatul Arab. It's a bit harder. It's in poetry format. But if you find the principles there, you'll find them in Al-Jurumiyyah anyway. You find them in Al-Ajrumiyyah anyway. So Al-Ajrumiyyah, I would advise you to do it two, three, four, five times. Go over it until you get used to it, inshallah. And most important, have someone to listen to you when you're reading. Have someone to listen to you when you're reading. So go through the books of Sheikh Fawzan, the easiest to read, such as Durusman al-Quran, such as the Shuruhat. Fantastic books you can go through. And your tongue slowly, slowly begets, gets used to the language. And his books you find are the easiest to read. Allahumma barik. Shaykh Saleh bin Fawzan, Fawzan Habidahullah. So that's the, Allah A'lam in a nutshell from what we can advise. Yeah. Just to add to that, and half of you will know why I have to add to that. For several years we've been teaching Arabic now. And for several years, brothers have been doing Medina book one, book two, book three. And going through those various different topics and learning and memorizing. Two main things. One is, you're never going to learn Arabic unless you've got the long-term plan in mind. In the UK, the difference, the big difference, compared to learning it when you're abroad, is that you don't have it in your environment outside. You go to your class, you do your one hour of Arabic, you walk outside and all of the signs are in English, everybody's talking in English. So you don't have the environment. Whereas when you're in a Muslim country, you learn it in class, you walk outside, you go to the shop, you need to speak Arabic to get what you want. You need to be able to speak Arabic to get your taxi to where you want to go. So in this country, you need to understand it's going to be a long-term plan. You're not going to learn Arabic in three months in one summer crash course. It's not going to happen. So that's why when this was being mentioned now about book two, they drop out. That is common. It is common because people don't have that long-term plan. That it's going to take a year, two years. It took us two years in, in Saudi. The course that we do is two years in Saudi. And that is 25 hours a week. 25 hours a week, five lessons a day, five days a week for two years, four semesters to get you to the level of university. So what therefore of the UK? The reality is it's going to be at least double. Three, four years of hard work and you'll get to a level where your Arabic is now coming along. You need to have that mentality. You can't think to yourself, I'm going to start in summer, at the end of summer, inshallah, I'll be at the end of book two, I'll be in the middle of book three, I'll know what I'm doing. It takes a long time, so make a strong, firm, resolute mindset to study into the long run. The second thing as well is, with the Medina course, you need to be aware, it's not just Medina book one, two, and three, which you have available in, your, in the bookshops everywhere now. That is only, as the brother mentioned, the Nahu aspect. The Medina course is actually something like 30 books. Medina book 1 that you see now has three other parts that go with it. Medina book 2 that you see now 
has six or seven other parts that go with it. Medina book three is actually book three and book four. They printed it all together into one volume. That is book three and then Medina book four. Medina book three part has another seven parts with it. Medina book four has another six parts with it. It is all together 30 parts. And it's a mistake to go from Medina book one onto Medina book two onto Medina book three. The course was never designed to be studied like that. You're supposed to do Medina book one and maybe try and do one of the side books at least. Because those supplementary books, they implement the grammar you've been taught in Medina book one. When you go to Medina book two, it has all of those side books. Pick a couple of them, two or three of those and do those two. Because they will implement the grammar that is in Medina book two. That's how you then build up to getting onto book three. It's a mistake to go from one, two, three. You could do that. You could memorize that. You would not be speaking Arabic. And you would not be understanding Arabic. Because the course was never designed to be taught like that. So be aware of those side books. They're printed now. You can get them all printed in a big volume. About 30 pounds per volume. Available in some of the bookshops. But you need to be aware. You need to do some of those side books too. In the long run, with the side books the full course or as much as possible until then you start realizing how you can understand and learn. But otherwise people get to book two, end of it, and they say, I still can't understand properly, I still can't put sentences together because you haven't done the practice and the comprehension that goes along with it. So just to quickly do one, two of these others, quick ones. I must it just yeah. before you continue. I said, I said, نعم. I have to correct that one in this question, huh? <laughs> the brothers will continue, inshallah. I have to, I have to go, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. A quick one here says a masjid only has one entrance. In order to walk into the mosque, you have to walk in through the first row. What do you do? I assume the person is worried about walking across people who are praying. In the jama'ah, when the jama'ah is going on, the imam has a sutra. The sutra of the imam is the sutra of the jama'ah behind him. So when you walk in and you have to cross the first row, that doesn't impact upon their prayer. It's allowed. That will not impact. You are not cutting across anybody. If that is the only way in, then that is the way you go in. And their sutra is covered by the imam's sutra. So you're allowed to walk in across that row to get in. Another quick one. Did Imam Abu Hanifa believe that Allah is everywhere? There are some statements of Imam Abu Hanifa mentioned by Imam Al-Tahawi and others that indicate he did not believe this. There is one famous statement where Imam Abu Hanifa says, لَيْسَ مِنْ وَصْفِ الْأُلُوهِيَّةِ it is not from the characteristics of the Uluhiyah of Allah that you call upon him down. That you call upon him here or downwards. Rather, from the characteristics of the Uluhiyah of Allah is that you call upon him above. So that statement of Imam Abu Hanifa seems to indicate clearly that he did not believe Allah is everywhere. Rather, he believed that Allah is above. 
And one last quick one before we move across again. Is there a sin upon an individual who recites the Qur'an without the correct tajweed? Tajweed itself is not a condition. The condition or what you should strive to get to at the minimum is the ability to recite the letters, their pronunciations, getting the pronunciations correct, being able to join them correctly, say the words pronounced correctly. That is the minimum. That is the minimum required to lead the prayer. Tajweed, full tajweed is not a condition even to lead the prayer. So you're not sinning if you don't know full tajweed. But what you need to try and get to is a level where you can pronounce the letters properly. You know what sounds they're supposed to make, how to join them, how to read the words properly. And there is the narration in Sahih Muslim that a person who when he reads, that there is a reward for you. If you're struggling in reading, but you're striving, it is difficult upon you to read, but you strive and you focus and you try to learn, then there is a double reward for you, one for reading and one for the extra effort you're having to put in to try and get to that. So strive to get to a level where you can pronounce things properly and it's not a condition to be at the level of tajweed that you can then carry on into the future learning and learning and get to the higher levels. But at least if you can recite the words and pronounce them properly, that is the minimum. Two quick questions. First of all, uh, I am always worried about not having the money, food, etc. the same as I have now in the future. It's confusing. Okay, this is to do with risk and fear of uh, not having risk. Um... As Allah Azza wa Jal, He says in the Quran, وَمَا مِن دَابَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا There is no creature upon the earth except that it is upon Allah, its sustenance is upon Allah. And Allah Azza wa Jal has created for every creature, for every person, ways and means, asbab, ways and means for their sustenance. So for the animals, the various types of animals, the fish, there are ways and means for the birds. There are ways and means for the cattle, for the sheep. There are ways and means for every single creature, which includes, includes humans. There are ways and means which Allah has placed by which he brings their rizq, their sustenance to them. Now as for a person, we see in the hadith that the messenger of Allah Wasallam he said, if only you made tawakkul upon Allah, as he truly, as, as the wakil should be truly placed, uh, should be truly placed upon him, then you would have your you would have your sustenance. Just like the birds, they go uh, with an empty stomach, and they come back with a full stomach. So, if you take the asbab, if you take the ways and means, just like the birds, they go and they take the ways and means. They go out in the morning, they come back in the evening with a full belly because they. Use the asbab, they take the, 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 use the ways and the means. So if you take the ways and the means, and they are obviously halal, they are halal, halal, they are lawful, and after taking the ways and the means, you put your tawakkul upon Allah, this is the meaning of tawakkul, you take all the ways and means, then you put your heart's trust in Allah that He will bring about the effect. This is the meaning of tawakkul. Take the, take the ways, take the means. Once you've taken them, know that Allah is the one who will bring about the effect. Not the ways and means themselves. 
Because Allah is the one who created those ways and means for you. And He is the one who will produce the effect. So once you've taken the ways and means, your heart should be attached to Allah. And not to the ways and means thinking that the rizq must come to me now. Because I've taken the ways and the means. No. This, is not, this, this, this opposes tawakkul. Tawakkul is to place your reliance upon Allah. So if you were to do this, if you were to adhere to this and stick to this, then you have nothing to, nothing to fear about. Your rizq is upon Allah as long as you take the ways and means and you make tawakkul upon Him. Second question, can the du'at make tabdi' of individuals here in the West? Must scholars be consulted on this issue, on this issue only? There's a nice, nice answer to this question by Sheikh Rabia ibn Hadi, hafizahullah ta'ala. And uh, to, to summarize the question, basically he says that in those issues which have already become clear, they're already clear to everybody and the haqq is distinguished from the baqir. So for example, everybody knows that the jahmiya are upon misguidance. Everybody knows that the murji'a are upon misguidance. Everybody knows that the rafida and the shia are upon misguidance and their individual statements that they make, that it is, it is misguidance. Likewise, in our times where the proof has been clearly established, like Al-Ikhwan Al-Muslimun, for example, are upon misguidance and innovation, or the Tabligh are upon misguidance and innovation, all those groups or individuals about whom it has become clear and apparent with evidences, and the scholars have spoken, and it is established. With respect to them, if you see a man coming and speaking with their speech or with their statement, then that person is an innovator. He himself has taken himself out, if he was in the first place, of the sunnah. So for example, if you see someone who is a Salafi, even though this is very hard to imagine, well let's say the Salafi comes along and all of a sudden, one day he says, well actually I think Al-Ikhwan, they're doing a good job. Or I think, actually I think Hassan al-Banna had some good ideas or had some good, you know, good uh, you know, in, in him. Anyone who comes out and makes this type of remark, automatically this man is mubtadeh. Because the issue is absolutely clear because the hujjah has been established and it is known, it is widespread and you know, there's no confusion in this, in this issue at all. As for issues which are new and which are not clear and which are complicated, then the du'at, they must, the, the students of knowledge in the various lands, they must return back to the scholars and leave the affair to the scholars to the to the people to, to the scholars of the sunnah they look into this issue and they judge a statement or a methodology that this is bid'ah or this is not bid'ah and on the basis of that they will judge upon an individual that this person is misguided or not misguided an innovator or not an innovator all of this we leave it and we defer it to the scholars up until they speak in the likes of these issues so that's in a very very quick uh, in a nutshell uh, the answer to that question. Uh, and I'll pass it back to uh, Taqweem. Inshallah ta'ala. Uh, just a quick one, because the orders have come. The orders have come to round off. So a quick one here then. Regarding the sacrifice of Eid al-Adha, does one have to pay all oneself? Can the cost be split with others? Is there a sin upon one who doesn't offer even if he has means to do so? The sacrifice... Of, the, uh, of, a, of a sheep, that is not something you can participate with others in. 
that is yours, that you do as the head of the household, participation in that is not possible. You cannot say with your neighbor, let's go halves and we'll do one, I'll have half the meat and you have half the meat. It doesn't work like that. For that sacrifice, it must be alone. The participation of seven, which is what people normally get confused over, that is regarding the cows or the camels. It is not over the sacrifice of a sheep. So that must be done alone. Is there sin if you don't do it? The majority of the scholars have the opinion that the slaughtering now coming up, that it is sunnah mu'akkadah, something which is highly emphasized, that you really should do it if you have the means to do it, but not that you are a sinner if you didn't. That is the majority of the scholars, even though there are some who hold the opinion that if you have the ability and you don't, you are a sinner. But the majority, the jumhur, call it a sunnah mu'akkada on the issue. So it is something you really should, but not a sin if you don't. Okay, we'll finish with one uh, last question, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, probably a pertinent question and very important. In schools, children, bracket science, are taught many aspects which are in opposition to Islam. For example, about space and how planets rotate around the sun. In direct opposition to what we know as teachers, uh, uh, how, how as teachers working in schools can we convey the truth? This is a very important topic that Muslims must address and understand because it is the basis upon which we are seeing people are small minority of people are becoming confused about Islam, Islam itself. And some of them are becoming atheists. And that's because they have fallen for the conjectures and the make-believe stories and the fairy tales of you know, the, modern, the modern scientists. And it's a long question, but I'll just give you one quick answer to all of this, which is that as Muslims, you know, in the Quran, the sun moves, the earth does not move. The sun is that which moves. That which creates night and day is the motion of the sun. And the scholars like Sheikh Ibn Baz ta'ala, have made it clear that anyone who denies the motion of the sun, then he is a kafir, he is a disbeliever. And anyone who denies that the earth is stationary, we can't say that he's a disbeliever because the issue isn't as apparent as clear from the texts. Even though the earth is stationary, but the issue isn't as clear in the texts as is the sun, the, sun, <coughs> the issue of the sun moving. Now, uh, I'll give you just one example to show how they feed you with lies and fairy tales from an early age. And this is when your rational faculties, you don't have your rational faculties. So you can't really think about what you are being told. And the brainwashing, once it's put into your head, by the time you reach the age of 10, 11, 12, you, know, you can now think, it's too late. You think, you absolutely cannot let go of, of, of what they've taught you. So one of, one of the things which breaks the model, the solar system model, this model, by the way, it's been reverse engineered. Right? So they've assumed that the sun does not move. They put the sun in the center. 
And the reason why they put the sun in the center 500 years ago, which they will not tell you in the books, they will not write this in the, in the school textbooks, is because those people who put the sun in the center were astrologers. They were astrologers. They believed in fortune telling and predicting events, wars, victory, peace, defeat, births, deaths, right? Famines, droughts, things like this. Copernicus, all of these Kepler, all of these were, were astrologers and some of them dabbled in magic as well. Likewise, in that period, in the 14th, 15th century, from Egypt came this system of magic called Hermeticism. And in this, there is sun worship, the worship of the sun. Right? And so this was another factor which led to them putting the sun in the middle. Also, the reason for doing that is because they wanted a better model. A better model that tells them where this planet's going to be. Is it going to be here, there, there? Because the predictions were based upon where the planets were. If the planet Jupiter is here, this will affect you know, a particular war or a you know, weather or something. So they wanted more accurate methods of making predictions. All of this, you will never ever be told in school. They won't tell you that these were astrologers, sun worshippers, magicians. Because they tried to present the image that this was a scientific revolution. Right? We let go of superstition and you know, the, the pioneers of science. This is all lies. It's all fabrications. Right? This happened afterwards, two, three hundred years afterwards, when the basic ideas were already entrenched. So they put the sun in the middle, and um, what happened is that, assuming the sun is in the middle, they then reverse engineered everything. If the sun is in the middle, then the earth has to be such and such distance, and it must be going at such and such speed, and the moon must be going this direction. And all the figures that you see, the sizes, the figures, the calculations, the speeds, everything is reverse engineered after assuming the sun to be in the center. Right? Now there are many, many historians of science who say explicitly, and again you will never read this in the history, in the science books, that they say that this model, the sun being in the center or the earth being in the center, you cannot prove either one to be true or false. It's impossible. And it's exactly the same if you put the earth in the center and the sun going round it. You cannot falsify it on the basis of observations. It's impossible Right? This is in the books, in the, in, in the books of, of, of science. Now, uh, the, um, so, so what they did was, they reverse engineered it, and then by the time that they developed the instruments where they could now test it, because remember, for, 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 from 1500, 1600s, 1700s, the, all they had was telescopes, that's it, nothing else. What can you do with telescopes? Nothing. But by the time in the 19th century, when they now started understanding light, electromagnetism, waves, particles, and they started developing you know, knowledge of these things, and they started developing instruments, they now had enough understanding to actually test and see at what speed is the earth moving, right? So in the 19th century, there was a series of experiments from 1810 to 1887, right? In all of these experiments, they proved, or they couldn't prove that the earth is moving, the earth was actually standing still. And this was the great uh, controversy at the end of the 19th century. Why have we not been able to prove that the earth is moving? It should be moving, but it's not. Right? So the 19th century proved that the earth's not moving and that Copernicus was actually wrong. 
That's the science of the 19th century. The science of the 20th century is all about telling fairy tales to hide the science of the 19th century. That's all you need to know. Right? All of the Einstein, relativity, the Big Bang, the expansion, the, all of this nonsense is fairy tales. Take it from someone. I, I've studied their books. I've looked at history. I actually have a book in preparation on this topic. Uh, close to about 150 pages now and probably more. Quoting from, from them, from, from newspapers, from articles, from the scientists themselves, admitting that, you know, the, the, the dilemma was that the earth isn't moving. So what they did was, they had a number of choices. Either they scrap everything and say we were wrong, which they are not going to do. Or they say, that, or, or you have to now rewrite the whole of physics. Change everything in physics, which is what they went for. Right? So instead of the hard empirical physics of the 19th century, they, they, they rewrote everything and they started bringing all this nonsense about, you know, space-time curvature and all of this. Just, it, it's things that they imagine in their minds, which doesn't have any existence in external reality. Right? And it's all to conceal the fact that the earth is not moving. Tell me, which one of you can feel the earth moving at 1.9 million miles per hour? Who can feel that? Right, because the Earth is supposed to be first of all moving on its axis at a thousand miles per hour at the equator. If that was true at the, at the equator, you should be feeling a one thousand miles per hour wind. Right, because remember, if the Earth's going from west to east like this, it means that every atom is moving along with it. So, we're, we're, if you're on the equator and the Earth's going around like this, how's everything staying where it's supposed to be, like a bird? Right. All the atoms, the wind, the air, must be moving along with it in that direction, west to east, right? Now, if you fly in the opposite direction in an airplane or a bird flying east to west, it should be facing that fierce wind, but it isn't, right? It doesn't. Everything's the same. You throw a ball that way, that way, that way, that way. It's equal, right? This is just common sense, physical senses where you know that the earth is not moving. All of this is plain and evident to our physical senses, what they want you to do is tell you fairy tales to make you disbelieve your physical senses. Right? And this is brainwashing from an early age, so that by the time you reach maturity, you can't let go of this way of thinking. Now, one of the, there's, there's a lot more that can be said, but I'll finish with this. One of the clearest evidences that the earth is not moving and that the solar system model is categorically false is solar eclipses. Solar eclipses, which is there's one tomorrow... America it will run all the way from the west coast of America all the way down to the east coast of America. Right? Why do eclipses move from west to east when they should be moving east to west according to the model? Think about this now. Think about this. They say that the earth moves this way, right? So it's moving that way around. Imagine the sun is there. That lamp is the sun now. Right? So that lamp is the sun. Earth is moving like this, this way around. Right? And they say as well that the moon is moving that way around. Right? So the moon takes 28 days to go like this, right? one circle around the sun. But because the earth is moving about 28 times faster than the moon, then it seems to us that the moon's going from east to west. Right? Is that clear to everyone? The moon goes from east to west. But really, according to them, it's not going east to west. It's actually moving this way at a certain rate. But because the earth is moving faster by 28 times, Right? It appears to us that the moon is going that way. 
So now, if the sun is there and the moon is here and the earth is going 28 times faster this way, which way should the eclipse start from and where should it end? It should go from east to west, right? Because the earth is going like that 28 times faster. Yeah? If this is turning like this, right, then the eclipse should be here. Let's imagine the sun's there, the moon is here, right here. And as this earth is turning faster than the moon, then the moon is moving that way. The eclipse should start from here and it should go that way. Yeah? That's right, isn't it? When you go home, think about it. Draw it on a piece of paper. Just think about it. But what happens is that the eclipse actually starts from the west and moves towards the east. That's impossible. It's impossible. It's not possible. And to cover this up, they give you all these simulations and cartoons and models. And what they do is they fix, they fix the variables in the simulations and they show you a picture and then... It, it, it's all false and what they do is they play these little tricks so they'll make the moon to move faster twice as fast as what it should be right so it, it's all fraud everything's a fraud right so the cartoons that they tell you to, to, to uh, refute this you'll see that the moon quickly now is moving like 30 times faster than what it should be to make it look as if the shadow should be going west to east in the model but it's not so you've got to look out for these little tricks that they play with you second thing that's very clear is why is the part that sees the total eclipse only 70 miles across when the moon is actually uh, 2,000 miles across? Right? This is another fraud now. So tell me, can the shadow of an object ever be smaller than itself? You can do this test right now. You can, you know, you can get a ball. You put it, if, you put, if you've got something, if you've got a coin here right now, has somebody got a coin? We can do this right now. Right. So imagine this now is the moon, right? That's the sun over there. And the moon is quite close to the earth. Well, you can't really see it. Tell me, can you ever have the shadow of an object smaller than itself? Is it possible ever that the shadow of an object be smaller than itself? No matter how big the lamp is, it makes no difference. This is impossible. So if the moon is 2,000 in diameter, then on the earth, the shadow of the, the full eclipse should actually be 2,000 miles in diameter. Right? That means almost half of the earth should be seeing a total eclipse. Whereas what you see is a small strip, which is about probably 50, 60, 70 miles. Right? So what they do is they tell you these fairy tales. It's all fraud by way of images. So what they do is, if you look at this diagram... They make it, first of all, they put the sun right next to the moon. That's not to scale. And secondly, they say that the rays of the sun go out diagonally like this. When it suits them, they say they go diagonally. When it suits them, when it doesn't suit them, then they say it goes parallel like this. Right? So they're playing games with you by these diagrams. That's a fraudulent diagram. That's a fraudulent diagram. This cannot be reproduced in real life. Right? You can do it yourself at home. With a large lamp, get a lamp with a large bulb like this big. Take a small marble that big and put it in front of a globe that you have, right, which is, you know, half the size of a globe. Put it there and you tell me if the, if the shadow becomes, you know, minuscule compared to its diameter. It won't. It never will. It never can. Right. So this shows that the model is false. The model is absolutely false. It's not the earth that is rotating. It's the sun and the moon. They are the same size. The sun and the moon are the same size. And they are simply passing over each other. And they are both travelling uh, from uh, eastly direction to westly direction. 
When the sun overtakes the moon on the 29th of every Islamic calendar month, on some occasions it actually goes over it and if you're in a land that will see the, 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 the sun being blotted out, you will see an eclipse. That's all it is. Right? So this is just one example. There are many other examples that can be shown to actually falsify the model. So what I advise you as teachers is you should learn these things, not take everything that you've learnt. It's, it's, it's just a model and it has flaws. And you can teach the model and say, look, this is what they teach us, this is what the textbooks say, this is what they believe, but this is what we believe. And here are some clear evidences to show that this is wrong. Common sense evidences to show why it's wrong. But because this is what they teach, you will be questioned and examined on this, examined on this then this is how you need to answer. This is what you need to know, according to their model. And when you answer, say, according to modern astronomy, according to modern, this is how it works. This is how you answer, right? So this is what the teachers should do, parents and teachers, uh, because th these are the things by which shak, they create shak in the, in, 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 in the people's hearts. And all of it, as Allah Azawajal, He says, إِن وَإِنْهُمْ They follow nothing but conjecture. And they do but just guess. That's all that they have, nothing else. The rest of it is propaganda and telling lies and, and whatever else. Allah knows best. Round off there then. The hosts want to round off. Allah, so remember then the normal lessons every Fridays. Every Friday evening there's a class here, 7.30pm approximately every Friday. Every Saturday too, 7.30 as well. Friday and Saturday, two days a week, regularly. So make the effort and tell your friends, families in the locality, Friday, Saturdays, every week there's a lesson going on. Jazakumullah khair.